Part 1 of Exile from Space This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jen Broda Exile from Space by Judith Merrill Part 1 Who was this strange girl who had been born in this place and still it wasn't her home i don't know where they got the car we made three or four stops before the last one and they must have picked it up one of those times anyhow they got it but they had to make a license plate because it had the wrong kind on it they made me some clothes too a skirt and blouse and shoes that looked just like the ones we saw on television they couldn't make me a lipstick or any of those things because there was no way to figure out just what the chemical composition was. And they decided I'd be as well off without any driver's license or automobile registration as I would be with papers that weren't exactly perfect, so they didn't bother about making those either. They were worried about what to do with my hair and even thought about cutting it short so it would look more like the women on television but that was one time I was way ahead of them. I'd seen more shows than anyone else, of course. I watched them almost every minute, from the time they told me I was going, and there was one where I'd seen a way to make braids and put them around the top of your head. It wasn't very comfortable, but I practiced at it until it looked pretty good. They made me a purse, too. It didn't have anything in it except the diamonds, but the women we saw always seemed to carry them, and they thought it might be a sort of superstition or ritual necessity, and that we'd better not take a chance on violating anything like that. They made me spend a lot of time practicing with the car, because without a license, I couldn't take a chance on getting into any trouble. I must have put in the better part of an hour starting and stopping and backing that thing and turning it around and weaving through trees and rocks before they were satisfied. Then, all of a sudden, there was nothing left to do except go. They made me repeat everything one more time about selling the diamonds and how to register at the hotel and what to do if I got into trouble and how to get in touch with them when I wanted to come back. Then they said goodbye, and made me promise not to stay too long, and said they'd keep in touch the best they could. And then I got in the car, and drove down the hill into town. I knew they didn't want to let me go. They were worried, maybe even a little afraid I wouldn't want to come back, but mostly worried that I might say something I shouldn't, or run into some difficulties they hadn't anticipated. And outside of that, they knew they were going to miss me. Yet they'd made up their minds to it. They'd planned it this way, and they felt it was the right thing to do. And certainly they'd put an awful lot of thought and effort and preparation into it. If it hadn't been for that, I might have turned back at the last minute. Maybe they were worried, but I was petrified. Only, of course, I wanted to go, really. I couldn't help being curious, and it never occurred to me then that I might miss them. It was the first time I'd ever been out on my own, and they'd promised me, for years and years, as far back as I could remember, that someday I'd go back, like this, by myself. 
But going back when you've been away long enough is not so much a homecoming as a dream deja vu. And for me, at least, the dream was not entirely a happy one. Everything I saw or heard or touched had a sense of haunting familiarity, and yet of wrongness, too. Almost a nightmare feeling of the oppressively inevitable sequence of events, of faces and features and events just not quite remembered and not quite known. I was born in this place, but it was not my home. Its people were not mine, its ways were not mine. All I knew of it was what I had been told, and what I had seen for myself these last weeks of preparation on the television screen. And the dream feeling was intensified at first by the fact that I did not know why I was there. I knew it had been planned this way, and I had been told it was necessary to complete my education. Certainly I was aware of the great effort that had been made to make the trip possible, but I did not yet understand just why. Perhaps it was just that I had heard and watched and thought and dreamed too much about this place, and now I was actually there. The reality was not so much a disappointment as just sort of unreal, different from what I knew when I didn't know. The road unwound in a spreading spiral down the mountainside. Each time I came round, I could see the city below, closer and larger and less distinct. From the top, with the sunlight sparkling on it, it had been a clean and gleaming pattern of human civilization. Halfway down, the symmetry was lost, and the smudge and smoke began to show. Halfway down, too, I began to pass places of business, restaurants and gas stations and handicraft shops. I wanted to stop. For half an hour now, I had been out on my own, and I still hadn't seen any of the people, except the three who had passed me behind the wheels of their cars, going up the road. One of the shops had a big sign on it, Come in and look around. But I kept going. One thing I understood was that it was absolutely necessary to have money, and that I must stop nowhere and attempt nothing till after I had gotten some. Farther down, the houses began coming closer together, and then the road stopped winding around and became almost straight. By that time, I was used to the car, and I didn't have to think much about it, and for a little while, I really enjoyed myself. I could see into the houses sometimes, through the windows, and at one, a woman was opening the door, coming out with a broom in her hand. There were children playing in the yards. There were cars of all kinds parked around the houses, and I saw dogs and a couple of horses, and once a whole flock of chickens. But just where it was beginning to get really interesting, when I was coming into the little town before the city, I had to stop watching it all, because there were too many other people driving. That was when I began to understand all the fuss about licenses and tests and traffic regulations. Watching it on television, it wasn't anything like being in the middle of it. Of course, what I ran into there was really nothing. I found that out when I got into the city itself. But just at first, it seemed pretty bad, and I still don't understand it. These people are pretty bright mechanically. 
You'd think anybody who could build an automobile, let alone an atom bomb, could drive one easily enough. Especially with a lifetime to learn in. Maybe they just like to live dangerously. It was a good thing, though, that I'd already started watching out for what the other drivers were doing when I hit my first red light. That was something I'd overlooked entirely, watching street scenes on the screen, and I guess they'd never noticed either. They must have taken it for granted, the way I did, that people stopped their cars out of courtesy from time to time to let the others go by. As it was, I stopped because the others did, and just happened to notice that they began again when the light changed to green. It's really a very good system. I don't see why they don't have them at all the intersections. From the first light, it was eight miles into the center of Colorado Springs. A sign on the road said so, and I was irrationally pleased when the speedometer on the car confirmed it. Proud, I suppose, that these natives from my own birthplace were such good gadgeteers. The road was better after that, too, and the cars didn't dart in and out off the side streets the way they had before. There was more traffic on the highway, but most of them behaved fairly intelligently. Until we got into town, that is. After that, it was everybody for himself, but by then I was prepared for it. I found a place to park the car near a drugstore. That was the first thing I was supposed to do, find a drugstore, where there would likely be a telephone directory, and go in and look up the address of a hawk shop. I had a little trouble parking the car in the space they had marked off, but I could see from the way the others were stationed that you were supposed to get in between the white lines with the front of the car next to the post on the sidewalk. I didn't know what the post was for until I got out and read what it said, and then I didn't know what to do because I didn't have any money. Not yet. And I didn't dare get into any trouble that might end up with a policeman asking to see my license, which always seemed to be the first thing they did on television when they talked to anybody who was driving a car. I got back in the car and wriggled my way out of the hole between the other cars and tried to think what to do. Then I remembered seeing a sign that said, Free Parking, somewhere, not too far away, and went back the way I'd come. There was a sort of park with a fountain spraying water all over the grass and a big building opposite, and the white lines here were much more sensible. They were painted in diagonal strips so you could get in and out quite easily, without all that backing and twisting and turning. I left the car there and remembered to take the keys with me and started walking back to the drugstore. That was when it hit me. Up to then, beginning, I guess, when I drove that little stretch coming into Manitou, with the houses on the hills and the children and yards and dogs and chickens, I'd begun to feel almost as if I belonged here. The people seemed so much like me, as long as I wasn't right up against them. From a little distance, you'd think there was no difference at all. Then, I guess, when I was close enough to notice, driving through town, I'd been too much preoccupied with the car. It didn't really get to me till I got out and started walking. They were all so... big. They were big and their faces and noses and even the pores of their skin were too big. 
and their voices were too loud, and they smelled. I didn't notice that last much till I got into the drugstore. Then I thought I was going to suffocate, and I had a kind of squeezing, upside-down feeling in my stomach and diaphragm and throat, which I didn't realize till later was what they meant by being sick. I stood over the directory rack, pretending to read, but really just struggling with my insides, and a man came along and shouted in my ear something that sounded like, Vom trouble, lady. I didn't get that sorted out for hours afterwards, but I don't think I'll ever forget just the way it sounded at the time. Of course he meant, having trouble, little lady? But all I knew at the time was he was too big and smelled of all kinds of things that were unfamiliar and slightly sickening. I couldn't answer him. All I could do was turn away so as not to breathe him and try to pretend I knew what I was doing with the directory. Then he hissed at me. Sorry, no offense, I figured out later. And said clearly enough so I could understand even then, just trying to help and walked away. As soon as he was gone, I walked out myself. Directory or no directory, I had to get out of that store. I went back to where I'd left the car, but instead of getting in it, I sat down on a bench in the park and waited till the turmoil inside me began to quiet down. I went back into that drugstore once before I left, purposely, just to see if I could pin down what it was that had bothered me so much, because I never reacted that strongly afterwards, and I wondered if maybe it was just that it was the first time I was inside one of their buildings. But it was more than that. That place was a regular snake pit of a treatment for a stranger. Believe me. They had a tobacco counter and a lunch counter and a perfume and toiletry section and a nut-roasting machine— and just to top it off, in the back of the store, an open-to-look-at-and-smell pharmaceutical center. Everything all mixed together and compounded with stale human sweat, which was also new to me at the time, and no air conditioning. Most of the air conditioning they have is bad enough on its own, with chemical smells, but those are comparatively easy to get used to, and I'll take them any time over what I got in that first dose of odor to earth. End of part one.